when someone nears the end of their life, you really want to pay attention to whatever it is they have to say. Because very often, their last words spoken are often their most important words. It's definitely true in the life of Christ. We see that in his prayer just moments before the crucifixion. It's often called the high priestly prayer, and it's given that name because Jesus is interceding on behalf of those who belong to him. Or to put it more specifically, that day when Jesus was praying, he had you and I in mind. So listen closely to his prayer to the Father just moments before the cross. In John chapter 17, verse 22, Jesus prays to the Father and says, The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. So as we think about these, some of these final words of Jesus, we see that unity was what was most important to him to communicate in those final words. And not just unity where we kind of tolerate each other. If you listen closely, what he was saying is he was praying for a, a unity among God's people that is consistent with the unity, the undivided fellowship of the Trinity. Now, just think about that for a minute. That, that same love that exists between the undivided fellowship of the Trinity is what Jesus says in praise would be evident among his people. So that same devoted love that the Father has for the Son, the same self-sacrificing love that the Son has for the Father, the same edifying encouragement that the Spirit has for the Son, the same glorifying honor that each one has for the other. That's the magnitude of love that Jesus is praying would be evident among his people. It's a, it's a supernatural love that leads to a supernatural bond. And that's exactly what Jesus desires for us. Because Jesus says that this is actually what sets us apart from the, the selfish sin that we see in the world. In fact, he goes so far as to say that our love for one another is what, at least in part, validates his ministry. So yes, I think these final words of Jesus are really important, and I believe Paul does as well because he will spend some time in our passage this morning helping us understand how important that supernatural love is to protecting the bond of unity in the believers in Jesus Christ. As Jeff read this morning, you can see that there are two specific concerns that Paul is addressing in our passage this morning. One of them has to do with diet. The other one has to do with days. These are potential issues that could create disunity within the body of Christ. But really, these, these issues are representative of a whole host of possibilities. These are issues of preference based on personal conviction. And, and even though these are the ones that were relevant in their day, there are many others in our day that we could add to the list. 
things like movies that people choose to watch, music that people choose to listen to, political parties they support, the way they raise their kids, the way they educate their kids, the way they spend their money. I'm sure even in a church our size, there are a variety of opinions on every single one of those subjects. The problem is, when we turn our personal opinions into moral obligations, leading us to judge another person's heart based on the choices that they make on these issues. And that's Paul's primary focus this morning. And so let me be really clear from the outset as we look at this passage together. These are personal preferences. They are not issues of morality. In other words, no one is sinning on either end of the spectrum of these opinions, both in terms of diet or days, or we could add to that list even now. Because if they were issues of sin, Paul's counsel would look very different. We know that's true because of what we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Here's where Paul confronts a very serious issue of immorality in the church. He says that there's somebody who is actually sleeping with his father's wife. Paul says this kind of immorality is not even evident among the unbelieving Gentiles. But to make matters worse, the church has remained silent on the issue. So he writes in chapter 5, verse 11, saying this, But actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. You, is the idea here, you remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Paul says the church is to deal decisively with issues of unrepentant sin. This is a strong admonition, but it's not what we see in Romans chapter 14. Because Romans 14 is dealing with personal convictions, not sinful decisions. These are morally neutral choices made by committed Christians. The first one Paul addresses has to do with food. He says there are some who can eat meat in good conscience, while there are others who can't, so they eat vegetables only. And there are probably a number of reasons why this is going on, but, but most likely it has something to do with Jewish adherence to dietary laws. But even here, we need to be careful and very specific on what's going on, because there are examples in the New Testament where we see people following Jewish tradition as a means to salvation. And so they might say on one hand, yes, you need to believe in Jesus Christ, but you also have to follow this list of rules in order to be saved. 
And every time that happens, the biblical authors are clearly condemning that practice. And in the absence of that condemnation, we know that's not what's happening here. These Jews are not trying to earn their salvation. These are believers who are trying to maintain their purity before God. They take passages to heart like we would see in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, where it says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. You see, this group knows that, 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 that Rome is a pagan culture. There's all kinds of idol sacrifices going on every single day. And most of the meat in the market was likely involved in some of those idol sacrifices. So... In order to avoid any compromise whatsoever, they choose to abstain from eating meat at all. They only eat vegetables. Now, we actually see a similar decision in Scripture in the Old Testament from Daniel and his friends when they were held in captive in Babylon. You'll remember that's a pagan culture as well, filled with all kinds of idol worship, just like we would have seen in Rome during that time. So in order to remain pure, we know that Daniel and his friends chose to eat vegetables only. They were faithful to their personal convictions within that pagan culture. But on the other end of the spectrum, there are those in our passage who look at the issue and say, it's not possible for me to be defiled by idols that don't even exist. They follow the logic of Paul when he writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4, and he says, Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. He goes on in verse 8 and says, Food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. In other words, meat cannot be defiled by worshiping an idol that does not exist. So in effort to honor God, they can eat meat in good conscience. We see a similar difference of opinion when it comes to the issue of days. Some have a conviction that celebrating, likely the feast days, remained very important among God's people because these people knew that God established these feast days to help His people remember His miraculous works. And so in an effort to honor God, they observed these holy days. But I want you to remember The early church at this time was also being populated by a number of Gentiles who were coming to faith. And these Gentiles had no experience of these historical events. They chose to not recognize any one day as more important than the others. From their perspective, every single day is equally valuable in the eyes of God. So this is where Paul steps in to these differing opinions, and he's basically telling us, don't let your difference of opinion create division in the church, because here's the reality. Don't miss this. You can both be right, or you can both be wrong. It all depends on how you view the other person. Did you get that? 
You can both be right by following your personal conviction before the eyes of God and what He's placed on your heart. Or you can both be wrong based on how you view the other person. So if you choose to eat meat, for example, or or not celebrate the, the feasts, then don't look down on those who do. Paul uses the word contempt. It's the idea of disdain. I think the version that Jeff read this morning said despise, right? It's this condescending attitude towards someone else. It's the idea of feeling superior to another person. Seeing God smile on you and the choices you make while he frowns on others and the bad decisions that they make. It's kind of ugly, really. And when we read this passage, I don't want you to get caught up, as often people do, in trying to understand, okay, who's the the one that's strong in faith and who's the one that's weak in faith? Because then we try to extrapolate that to our circumstances and most 100% of the time, we decide that we're probably the one who's strong in faith and they're probably the one who's weak in faith. But please don't do that. Because when we do that, we're missing Paul's primary point in this passage. It's really not about identifying who's strong in faith and who's weak in faith. And here's why. For every single one of us, there are places in our life where we are strong in faith. But for that very same person, there are places in our life where we are weak in faith. Unless your name is Jesus, your faith is still being perfected which means you have places where you're strong and places where you're weak. So Paul says, look, get off your high horse and quit looking down at other people. If you think you've got it all figured out, then you're probably wrong. And if you're going to judge other people based on your own personal preferences, Paul says you're definitely wrong. Paul goes on to the other side of that spectrum and says, well, but it also applies to those who don't eat meat as well. So make sure that you don't judge the one who does. The word judgment here is a, is a critical condemnation of those who hold a different opinion than you. And we do this by taking our personal conviction and making it into a biblical mandate. After all, how can they make that decision and still call themselves a Christian? You know, right? I mean, how can they really, truly be loving if that's what they're going to do? Fill in the blank. Paul says in verse 4, and I find this incredibly convicting. He says, who are you to judge the servant of another master? If we were to put that in today's terms, we might say, what right does one boss have to do the performance appraisal of another person's employee, right? It doesn't make any sense. Because Paul says, beginning in verse 7, they don't belong to you. They belong to God. He is the only one who can judge what is happening in their heart. Because remember, we're all in process, right? No one has arrived. We all have places where we're strong and and places where we are weak. And praise God for being so patient with us as we struggle to be faithful to him. And so wouldn't it make sense that we extend that same grace that he gives to us towards others as they continue to grow in their faith as well? 
Or to put it a different way, how hypocritical would it be to receive God's grace towards us but then refuse to give it to anyone else? We need to remember that it's not our job to be the Holy Spirit in another person's life. Did you hear that? It's not our job to be the Holy Spirit in another person's life. And I'll make a confession here. When I came into ministry, I really struggled with this because I thought as a pastor, I'm supposed to have all the answers, right? So if you were to come to me with an issue, I needed to make sure that I gave you the right answer. And my job was convince you to live according to that answer. It was the most frustrating thing I could have ever done in my lifetime. Because why? It never worked. Never I I couldn't be the Holy Spirit in another person's life. It's not my job, and it's not your job either. I can't tell you how many marriages could be saved if the husband or wife would realize it's not their job to fix their spouse. It's not their job to fix their spouse. Or how many divisions in the church could be avoided if people didn't expect everyone to comply to their own personal preferences. I would say most of the divisions that we see within the church today center around that issue, personal preferences, because we're way too quick to turn our opinions into moral obligations. But here's the reality. There is only one standard by which we will all be judged and only one person to whom we will answer. As a Christian, we belong to Jesus Christ. We have been purchased by his blood, adopted into his family, given an eternal inheritance secured by his sacrifice on the cross on our behalf. Our allegiance is to him and him alone, which is why Paul goes on to say earlier in chapter 13, he says, owe nothing to anyone except to love. As Paul says in Verse 11, we will stand before the judgment seat of God, every single one of us. And when we do, God will not be comparing our performance against the decisions being made by other people. That's not how it works. Each one must give an account for his own life, not only for their faith in God, but also for their faithfulness to love God and love other people. You know, I think we would be much better served if we would stop focusing on our differences and stop thinking about what we have in common. If we would just focus a little more about where we agree instead of debating all the places in which we disagree. Because how we disagree is just as important, maybe even more important than why we disagree. Do you get that? How we disagree is just, if not more important, than why we disagree. And I'll be honest with you, more and more often today, Christians can be the very worst at this. And I think the reason is, is we justify our unfiltered speech saying what we think needs to be said as righteous anger. And we are definitely wrong. James 1.19 says, be quick to listen. Slow to speak and slow to anger. And more and more in our world today, I see this verse in reverse. 
We are quick to anger, quick to speak, expressing our opinion as a moral obligation, and many times we don't even listen to what the other person has to say. We send an email or post something on social media. Often our words are full of contempt, littered with judgment, and we call it righteous anger. But there is nothing righteous about bringing division within God's family, between brothers and sisters in Christ. We actually discredit the work of Christ when we bring division within his church by taking our personal conviction and making them into issues of faith. I think it's better for us to spend more time praying for people and less time trying to prove our point. After all, no one is better off when they believe my opinion. Really, they're not. And quite frankly, they're not better off by believing your opinion either. And I think that's part of Paul's point here. What's important here is for us to align our lives with the will of God as he speaks into our heart, because in the end, he's got the only opinion that matters. So let me close with this. In order to protect our unity in the bond of peace, as Scripture calls us to, we must learn to accept those with whom we disagree. And this may be surprising to you, but I just need to make sure you understand it's really possible to respectfully disagree with someone without rejecting them as a person. And one of the ways you show that respect is by listening. And that, I think it's the best way that you show respect. And so to do that, let me just encourage you, don't go into a, a conversation with a defensive posture. If you see that welling within you, you know what it feels like, right? When you are preparing for a conversation and everything kind of tenses within you and you're thinking of your counter arguments, if that's where you're at, just stop and don't have a conversation. In fact, call them up and say, hey, I need a little more time before we get together, and just take that time and pray for them. Pray for your own heart before you enter into the conversation. In fact, I would say even once you go into the conversation, if you know you disagree, then don't bring up your differing opinion. Don't bring it up. Just go with the purpose of listening to understand their point of view without passing judgment. I think this is part of what allows the church to be a safe place for people to share their perspectives and opinions without feeling like they're going to be so quickly condemned because at least people listen and try to understand. Make a commitment that before you speak, you will choose to pray. Because maybe, and this can often be the case, you see that someone holds an opinion that could lead to a place of compromise. That's, that's valid. So ask the Lord to speak to their heart before you ever say a word. Because remember, it's not your job to be the Holy Spirit in another person's life. Instead, you want to look for the Holy Spirit's already working and then follow his lead. That always works a whole lot, a whole lot better. In order to protect unity in the church, it's important to cultivate a culture of grace. 
There's a passage that I would point to that I think gives us one of the best pictures of what that looks like in Scripture. It's in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14. Listen to what it says. Paul writes and says, We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. I think admonishing the unruly is what we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Don't turn a blind eye to unrepentant sin. Follow Matthew 18 and start with one-on-one, brother to brother, speaking about the issue that you have concern about. Because your goal is to win on your brother, to, to bring him to a place of repentance before the Lord, because more important than your relationship with him is his relationship to the Lord. So be patient. But he goes on and says, encourage the faint-hearted and, and help the weak. And I think this is what gives people room to grow. It's putting your arm around someone instead of pointing your finger at them. It trusts the Lord to do the work of transformation so you don't have to. Isn't that freeing? Trusting the Lord to do the transforming work in another person's life so you don't have to take that responsibility on yourself. Coming alongside people is what cultivates a culture of grace. Condemnation and contempt is what creates division. And it all begins with the tongue, with what you say. Both in terms of what you speak and in today's culture, what you write. Uh, James chapter 1 verse 26 says this, If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 20 says, 21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Proverbs 15, verse 4 says, The soothing tongue is a tree of life, but a perverse tongue crushes the spirit. I think we can safely say that a culture of grace begins with controlling the tongue. Right? So as we close, I want to give you some time to reflect on this passage because I think it's really, really important in the times in which we live. I said several weeks ago, uh, shared with you a, a message that I heard when someone said that they felt like the most concerning issue that they see in the church today is what he called a quarrelsome spirit. I think it has everything to do with what our passage is telling us this morning. People who are quick to anger, quick to speak, and slow to listen. And in the church, we want to flip that. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. And so if you would, just in the quietness of your own heart, I'm going to ask that you take some time. And I want you to consider a few things as you spend some time before the Lord. Number one, maybe it would be good to take this opportunity and put this into practice by praying for someone with whom you know you disagree. Pray for God's blessing in their life. Pray for the Holy Spirit's work in their heart. Pray for you to be patient and kind and gentle towards them. That'd be a good place to start this morning. And then maybe there would be some time as you go before the Lord, even this morning, to recognize some of the hurtful words that you may have written or spoken to someone else. And maybe you need to go before the Lord and begin 
by asking for forgiveness, for stepping outside the boundary of his design. And you might even consider how you might make amends for that decision. And if nothing else, would you please take some time just to pray for this particular church body that we would cultivate a culture of grace so that we can be united even within our differences because we do agree on one thing. Salvation by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. Amen? So take some time in your own heart, and then I'll close this in prayer. Father, one of the many reasons I think your word is amazing is because of how aware you are of the places we are prone to wonder. You know the inclinations of our fleshly desires the propensity for our tongue to be unbridled and the power of those words to create division among your people. So thank you for speaking candidly about issues of preference that we make into biblical mandates. Forgive us, Lord, when we do that. When we hold people accountable to our own personal opinions, forgive us, Lord, when we do that. Thank you for helping us understand that our unity is critically important to validating your ministry. So Lord, forgive us when we are not quick to listen. Instead, we are quick to anger, quick to speak, slow to listen. Beginning this morning, Lord, I pray that we as a church body would be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace by being quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to anger, to be patient with everyone, that we would admonish the unruly, that we would encourage the faint-hearted, that we would help the weak, knowing that there are places that we are weak as well. And we need help there too. Lord, help us to be a people who cultivate a culture of grace so that we can find unity even in the midst of our differences and help us to lovingly care for one another with all gentleness and kindness, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as you, God, have forgiven us in Christ through his death on the cross on our behalf. May we extend the same love towards others that we have received from you, the same forgiveness towards others that we have received from you, the same grace towards others that we have received from you. And may this be a distinguishing characteristic of this church, your people, indwelled by your spirit, who live to the praise and glory of your name. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you and have a great day.